Welcome to episode 107 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Anshel Sog, and joining me again this week is Diana Govertz, Senior Editor at Fierce Telecom. Will is in Paris this week and won't be joining us, but we hope to have him back again next week. So let's get started. My first topic this week is about SpaceX's war on 12 gigahertz for 5G and how it's flooded the FCC with over 70,000 comments. Uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting topic because we talked about it uh, last week on the podcast and how um, they had sent out an email to their customers telling them that you know, they had done this testing and that they found significant harmful interference on the 12 gigahertz band. And because Starlink operates in that band, uh, that it would impede and interfere with their you know, user experience. So they actually had 70,000 users comment on the FCC telling them that they don't want this to happen. And um, it seems to be heating up. And this is kind of like, uh, from what I see, a lot of this is being directed straight at DISH um, because DISH is the one proposing the use of this spectrum. But uh, I'd love to hear your take. Yeah, so I'm probably not as up to speed on the 12 gigahertz back and forth um, as I should be, but I can comment on uh, some thoughts around SpaceX and Starlink and and why they might really, really want the spectrum, right? So uh, when Starlink adds capacity, they do that through either adding spectrum or adding more satellites. Um, And, you know, obviously, you don't want one of those two resources to be depleted by other people using like 5G. Um, and another thing is that right now, Starlink's uh, network is really relatively unloaded, right? There aren't too many people on it. Um, but if you look at, um, I know this is something that probably I mostly follow, but if you look at their RDOF winnings, SpaceX has huge commitments that they need to cover tons more people uh, using these satellites. And so, you know, if they only have two options to increase capacity and already they're having trouble meeting the speed benchmarks that were set under the RDOF process, they're going to do anything they can and fight scrappy to to make sure that they don't lose out on that money because it's it's millions of dollars. I think it's almost a billion. I think it's something in the realm of upper 800 millions. If I remember. Yeah, I think I remember being around 900 million and yeah, it's a significant chunk of money. And what's interesting is they are raising prices on customers as well, both on the hardware and on the services. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see where this will go if they run into any kind of roadblocks, but yeah, to your point, I think they're, um, you know, they're being very protective of their assets. Um, and I know that DISH has already responded to some of, you know, Starlink's claims about interference saying that their testing methodology was bad. So um, this is probably going to be a, a topic that we continue to cover in future podcasts. Uh, let's, let's move on to your first topic. Yeah, for sure. So I wanted to talk about the AT&T CTO shuffle. Um, I think you have some stuff to weigh in here. You and I were chatting about this um, offline earlier. Um, So here's the thing. AT&T named Jeremy Legg, who is the former CTO of WarnerMedia, former CTO, I think also of Turner, 
uh, as its new CTO for AT&T overall. Um, and also it announced that Igal Elbaz is going to be taking over for Andre Fuchs. And that is for CTO of their um, networking business specifically. So from what I understand from talking to you and from some other analysts, uh, this has kind of been a long time coming. Um, Jeremy was kind of teed up to take over that CTO spot for a while now, um, as was uh, Egal, actually. Um, if you remember a couple of years back, he shifted over into um, the wireline division, which at the time seemed kind of interesting because his background is more in wireless. Um, and so, you know, it definitely seems like a long-term planned move uh, from my conversations, again, with analysts, uh, yourself, Roger Etner, and some other folks. Um, so I know a lot of people were shocked. A lot of people were panicking about what this might mean for their 5G strategy, for their fiber strategy, but it seems kind of like a steady hand on the wheel. Uh, I, I wanted to see what you thought about this because uh, a CTO definitely could have a big influence on uh, you know, network strategy. Yeah, I, I think that my my views kind of echo that like this was like basically something that already was kind of in place in the sense that strategically the people who um, were executing the current strategy were essentially elevated to um, higher positions. And, um, you know, Andre has been in that position for a long time. And he's, you know, been with AT&T a long time. And I think that if you look at their strategy, I don't really see much changing. Uh, I think this is just kind of a, a confirmation of current strategy. But I do wonder if um, we will see any acceleration of the strategy with, um, you know, the new CTO leadership. Yeah, I, I, I'll definitely be keeping track of this because this is something I, I tried to ask AT&T directly about. Um, I didn't get much of a response other than the statement that all the other media got. Um, so I will be keeping track of it. I've spoken with Egal before um, about a variety of different things and he seems really knowledgeable. So yeah. based on my personal interactions with him, it seems like they're in good hands. Um, but I will definitely be tracking this as, as well, I'm sure my colleagues at First Wireless. Great, well, thanks a lot for that. Uh, my second topic this week is GE Healthcare is opening its first 5G innovation lab, uh, which is specifically aimed at transforming remote care. Um, what's interesting is this is actually opening in India, um, which can make sense if you think about like a lot of the a lot of the customer service and a lot of like the telecommunications stuff does happen in India. Um, but the problem I see with this is that there is no 5G in India today. Um, they haven't even auctioned any, you know, 5G spectrum yet. So um, we are still very much in the early phases of 5G in India. So I think it's kind of a bit odd that they would be doing this testing there. Um, because they would have to create a, a, a fake network to do testing, um, some kind of test network maybe. Um, but I, I do think that there are going to be a lot of use cases for healthcare in 5G. 
uh, and GE is one of the biggest in the, in the space. Um, but it, it just, you know, it confused me a little bit just because um, it's, it's, it's probably a good place to be doing it, but I feel like it's a little too early um, in terms of India. And I think they may have already planned this many years ago, but I don't think they necessarily planned India's 5G rollout taking as long as it is. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess what I would add on this front is that I understand why you would be surprised. Um, I've also been having some conversations with folks recently about what's going on in India on the wireline front, um, right? So there's a lot of work being done in terms of laying fiber, in terms of getting the um, internet interconnects, uh, like the landing stations, they're looking at expanding those because right now that's a bottleneck. Um, so it seems like there's a lot of movement on trying to get you know, the latest technologies there and deployed and scaled. Uh, so I wouldn't be too shocked if 5G follows relatively fast. And also, I think you have to keep in mind the size of the market, right? So, you know, behind the US and China, India has the potential to be, you know, a, a massive market. And if you can get a foot in the door from the get-go, that to me seems like it would make sense why they would do something like this. Um, but again, something to watch. I know that there's a lot going on on the 5G front and I'm sorry because my cat will not leave me alone. <laughs> it's fine, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, <laughs> The, the listeners probably can't hear it, but uh, people who are watching the, the YouTube version of the podcast can see the cat doing uh, the round the across. around the laptop. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think the other thing that I was thinking about was, to your point, you know, India does have a lot of scale and opportunity for scale, um, but it will be interesting to see how much of that scale happens in urban centers and how fast that grows, because a lot of India's customer bases are mostly centered around uh, the big cities and, and fairly dense populations. Um, but yeah, uh, let's, let's move on to your second topic. Yeah, sure. So this story um, is actually slightly older than some of the, the stuff that was from this week, um, but I still thought it was worth mentioning. I, I checked your previous episode. I didn't see it on there. Uh, but so this is talking about T-Mobile expanding its 5G home internet again. Uh, they're hitting 5 million more locations across a couple different states, Colorado, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Oklahoma. Um, this is interesting to me in the context of, as you know, as I keep mentioning, uh, I've kind of been really involved in the wireline world recently. And so fixed wireless is something that they're talking about a lot, right? So not necessarily that fixed wireless is stealing their net ads uh, or stealing their customers, but in that it might be taking share from customers who might be switching from DSL. And instead of going to cable or fiber, they're jumping on fixed wireless. So the fact that T-Mobile is expanding coverage to 5 million more is interesting. Uh, I would be interested to see what it does to Q2 and Q3 ads for uh, cable and fiber. The other thing I would mention is that um, I, I didn't delve too deeply into the specifics of what markets in these states, but um, these all seem to have, you know, significantly rural areas. And if you pay attention, that's where T-Mobile has been targeting, right? Because they don't want to use up all their mobile spectrum or capacity for fixed wireless. Um, some critics in cable um, have said that, you know, maybe fixed wireless will run out of capacity eventually, and then those customers will come back. But I think we'll have to see. Um, do you have anything to add here? I think that's very wishful thinking. 
Um, <laughs> especially when you consider that, you know, T-Mobile is going to be freeing up other spectrum other than, you know, uh, 2.5. Um, they already freed up 1900 and they're going to free up more spectrum as they shut down, you know, more bands and just leave 4G as like a, a backup, right? Um, so I, I think that when you look at fixed wireless, T-Mobile is not alone. There's also Verizon um, and Verizon's pushing their fixed wireless very heavily as well. Um, I recently was at a Verizon store and I was shocked by how much fixed wireless advertising I saw. Um, it's like almost like they weren't even interested in selling phones anymore, even though the store is mostly phones. Um, and I, I think that T-Mobile is going to continue to grow their net ads through these kinds of expansions because, you know, a lot of people who live in these rural areas are still dealing with, you know, single digit megabit service that's extremely unreliable. Um, and, you know, if T-Mobile's coverage in a place like, I think it was South Dakota, if they can really cover the whole state like they covered South Dakota with 600 megahertz and then supply additional spectrum, you know, wherever it's possible, I think that's already a huge improvement over whatever people have today. And so many people are like extremely disappointed with whatever their wireline service is that um, T-Mobile doesn't even have to really offer competitive pricing, even though they are. Um, and I think that it's, it's going to be very difficult to get people to leave um, these fixed wireless services and go back to, you know, a, a, a wireline service unless there are improvements made. And I think that's, that's always been the crux of the issue is it just that there haven't been very many upgrades. Yeah. And I would add that, you know, I think when a lot of folks talk about broadband speeds and everybody criticizes the FCC's, uh, you know, 25.3 benchmark as being way too low, I feel like that conversation is you know, heavily biased towards more urban and suburban areas, because right, even three years ago, before we moved to where we live now, I had the, the broadband I was paying for was 10-1 in New Jersey. And the, the tech, when I asked if I could get faster speeds, the tech said, no, no, you're not even getting 10-1, you're getting six and below. So I mean, the benchmark here is really low for fixed wireless providers, especially in slightly more rural areas. I mean, I was in a rural part of New Jersey, but still, you know, yeah. we had fair population density. And, um, you know, I think people should keep that in mind. The bar is low. I also would add that in, in my mind, the biggest problem that potentially we have is we're trying to apply the same standard to every place. And I think that, you know, the standards might actually depend on population density. Um, and also the standards and the economics of, you know, wireline and wireless technologies generally are based on population density and trying to push somebody to deliver hundred megabits in a place where there's not enough people to justify it might be a problem. And you end up not getting any service as opposed to slightly slower service. So I think there might be a, a better gradient approach that the FCC might want to consider as opposed to, uh, you know, a blanket number for the entire country, which what blanket number has ever worked for the whole country for anything yeah. ever, yeah. anything ever, <laughs> especially now. Um, 
but I don't want to get hung up on fixed wireless. I know you have one more topic in store. Yeah, so my last topic for this week uh, is that Nokia and LGU Plus have signed an MOU um, to do joint R&D for both 5G and 6G, which I think is interesting because, first of all, they're, they're still talking about doing 5G R&D together. Um, and it's not just, you know, super far out there, 6G development. And uh, that it's research on open radio access networks, open RAN, um, and, and that that will be the focus of what they plan on doing. Um, because I think that they see open RAN as a, a bigger opportunity for future technologies um, and potentially reducing the cost of rollouts because if, if some people are to be believed, terahertz uh, it might be a, an opportunity in 6G, which I think will only increase the, the cost and density of deployments, um, which would only further justify the need for some kind of open, you know, open radio access network. Yeah, I, I, like you said, I think it's interesting that they're talking about 5G research. Uh, and, you know, we've heard a lot about 5G this and 5G that, a revolution this, and, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I feel like it hasn't really materialized in the way that was promised. There was a lot of hype, and I'm still kind of wondering what the big deal is. Um, and I say this, you know, I've been reporting on Wireline for the past year, so I haven't been, uh, you know, in the 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 trenches on on 5G as I I have been previously but I mean I'm still in the industry I'm still paying attention so what do consumers think you know so I mean I, I just um so in that context that you know 5G has been promised and and to to my experience not really delivered in that revolutionary way right like I have faster speed on my phone but I'm not walking around with AR goggles. Um, it seems kind of ludicrous to talk about 6G. That said, I do know uh, technology cycles are really extended. Uh, you know, folks are working 10 years ahead of things. So, you know, they're not the only ones, I would say. Uh, there's, you know, the 6G flagship uh, that's going on. There are, I think there's also a 6G uh, North America group that's working on 6G as well. Um, so they're not the only ones that are forward looking, but part of me, part of me wants to be like, guys, focus. We, we got to get 5G done before we start looking ahead. But I know that's, that's not uh, the way things work. I know kind of got to have that dual, dual focus. I found since I've been covering the G's since before 4G launched, um, you know, I remember when 4G was promised, um, and they were promising gigabit speeds and they were never achieved. Um, so I just think it's one of those things where a lot of the G's are always over-promised in terms of what they can deliver. And then the next G ends up delivering on what the previous G was supposed to deliver. Um, that's what I found at least. Uh, I've only been around for about 15 years, but um, I think that uh, we'll probably see a lot of 6G doing what 5G was supposed to do. Um, kind of like we're seeing 5G do a lot of what 4G was supposed to do. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of good fundamentals that are being put in place. But to your point, these are very long development cycles. They generally take a decade to, to 
to come to fruition. And, you know, the first few years are always the rockiest. So um, let's, let's move on to your third topic. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's not something I, I bring up with glee by any means, but um, I wanted to talk about the parallel wireless layoffs that happened uh, this week and, and what that might mean for 5G Open RAN, right? Because they're one of the big players in the Open RAN space. And even though they seem to kind of have been left off the dish vendor list, uh, they certainly have been working with several other big names, you know, Millicom, Orange, Vodafone, Inland Cellular, they, they've been really involved. And so, you know, nine months ago, they were talking about growing. Now they're cutting staff. Uh, they're cutting some longtime employees who we all know. Um, they haven't talked about the size of the layoff, um, but they've said only that they're making adjustments to right size the business. Um, and they said... Reason they gave is that, you know, because of supply chain constraints and the pace of adoption of Open RAN. And it's that last little bit that gives me pause, the pace of adoption of Open RAN. And what does that mean, not just for parallel wireless, but the market more generally and for other players who are trying to work on Open RAN? Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I'm less in the network infrastructure side. So, you know, Will, Will is usually the one who lives and breathes that stuff. So I'm a little bit more removed, but I think because I'm a little bit more removed, I have a little bit more of a, um, you know, a slightly more critical view of Open RAN, kind of like you have a slightly more critical view of 5G now. Um, <laughs> and I think that when you consider that Open RAN doesn't necessarily, you know, easily slide into the existing network infrastructure, and that there are still a lot of integration challenges and that greenfield networks are the best opportunities of which there are not that many anymore. Um, I think that Open RAN really benefits the most from new potential deployments of 5G, which I believe will mostly be private 5G networks. Um, so I think that there needs to be more of a focus on what Open RAN means for 5G and how OpenRAM fits best into 5G that's available today. Um, and I think, I think really the, 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 the pace of adoption for OpenRAM is, is, is actually a function of, you know, private networks are gonna take a long time to build out. And because of that, OpenRAM is gonna take time to, to gain adoption. But I think long-term OpenRAM will, will become an, another opportunity for everybody, um, both to reduce costs and also to you know, increased deployment speed. Um, but I think it will just take time. And, you know, a lot of these startups and a lot of the industry love to hype things up and talk about how fast these things are going to grow. But generally, they tend to, to move pretty slowly, especially if we're talking about a technology where uh, it's very dependent on um, enterprises. And if, if private 5G is going to be the area where open RAN is the most relevant, uh, then it's going to, you know, it's definitely going to be a slow progression, you know, into relevance. Yeah. We're seeing uh, over on the wireline side, a similar push to try to open up and disaggregate the network the way that OpenRAN is working to do in wireless, um, you know, so they have disaggregated broadband network gateways. Um, they're looking at tweaking the core. Uh, there's, there's so much going on. Um, and it, it, I, as I was thinking about the wireline stuff, I kind of flash back to some stuff uh, 
you know, I think it was Neville Ray said uh, over at T-Mobile and, you know, it's kind of whose throat do I choke when something goes wrong? And I think for any provider of a critical service, the way broadband is, whether you're talking about mobile or fixed, that's a question that I don't think has been answered yet. Uh, and I think that's a really big problem for OpenRAN um, because these networks can't go down. In a, in a world where we all, or as many people as can, work remotely, uh, in a world where telehealth is a thing, where virtual education is a thing, these networks can't go down. Um, and if you don't know who you're supposed to call when something goes wrong with the OpenRAN equipment you're using, uh, because, you know, different software vendors are working with different hardware like that's a problem yeah. and i think that is something the open ran ecosystem as a whole uh fixed and mobile needs to solve if they want this to take off yeah and it's interesting because i was talking to will about this maybe a podcast or two ago i, I think we're going to see a lot more consolidation within the industry because it's going to be necessary uh, i think it was when the when qualcomm acquired Cellwise. I think that's a perfect example of that because Cellwise is offering services for a lot of these VRAN and OpenRAN kind of technologies and Qualcomm's offering the hardware. So, you know, you're going to see more and more hardware vendors, I believe, acquiring software orchestration and, and, and management services because they want to have more integrated solutions because to your point, people need to know who to blame and for what. And I think that's just going to be a natural progression as companies start to get picked off either because um, they have compelling technology or because they no longer have financial viability. Either way, I think the consolidation is going to be necessary. And there's a lot of companies in the space right now. And I think the only the serious players with the right funding and the right strategy will be the ones who succeed, which, you know, ultimately is what you would hope for, uh, you know, down the road as these things develop. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, vendor lock-in sucks, but it makes things easy, doesn't it? Yeah, and that kind of is antithetical to the whole open thing, right? Um, yeah. But I think I think you can still be open um, and still have you know integrated um, software and hardware as mm -hmm. long as you follow standards. So I think standards will will continue to be important. And you know, if there's an organization that, that that manages all that, I think that will help the industry move forward in a semi open semi-closed kind of way absolutely great well i think that wraps up our our podcast for today so i'll i'll take us home uh our, we hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting if anyone out there would like to provide insights for a specific 5g topic on a future podcast please reach out to us on social media diana is at dm marie's beat and i'm at Anshal Saad. we hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week